Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And on this month's F-Word segment on fascism, I speak to author and cultural critic Henry Giroux, who says that fascism starts with words. Trump wants the leaders to believe that the truth doesn't matter. And that, you know, if the truth doesn't matter, there's no distinction between facts and fiction. Well, when you educate a public to believe that, you educate a public that can be manipulated. You educate a public that can't tell good from evil a public that can't recognize state violence, a public that can't recognize racism, a public that can't recognize what the factors are that are giving rise to a, a fascist state. And youth Palestinian journalist Jana Jihad tells DC audiences about life under Israeli apartheid. If you're a Palestinian child and you're 12 years old or up, you can get arrested, interrogated, treated like a criminal because of you trying to defend your land, your home, your mother, your family, yourselves. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, the July 24th highly touted congressional testimony of former special counsel Robert Mueller may have been hyped like a lion, but it exited like a lamb. Mueller, appearing at times unprepared and confused, refused to answer questions nearly 200 times from members of the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees He added little to nothing to the content in his already delivered 400-page report, which concluded that the Trump presidential campaign did not collude with Russia during the 2016 election. With no new bombshell or smoking gun revelation, the strategy of Democrats to pivot toward accusations that Trump obstructed justice seemed to lead them to a dead end, the same dead end faced by their hopes for impeachment in the Republican-controlled Senate. The hearing actually offered more opportunity for Republicans to question how the debunked Russiagate narrative ever got started, with fingers being pointed at the Democrats in a new ongoing investigation by Attorney General Bill Barr. Now, at the same time that Wednesday's Mueller testimony was happening, more damning information was shared in a hearing of the House Appropriations Committee about the treatment of migrants on the U.S. southern border and about the conduct of Border Patrol officers. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida questioned Carla Provost, chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, about why few officers are being held accountable for the thousands of reported abuses of migrants. And I'd like to ask you a question about the culture of cruelty that exists, appears to exist in your agency. In an email to a supervisor, there was a widely reported incident that occurred at the El Paso Processing Center in which an agent recounted seeing a colleague forcing a Honduran migrant to hold a sign that had the words, Mi gustan los hombres, or I like men. An agent instructed the man to walk with the sign in front of a group of other migrants to humiliate him. The agent who reported the incident recounted that several colleagues laughed while this was occurring. This is a disgusting account on so many levels. It is cruel, dehumanizing, and homophobic. There are countless other examples of cruel and inhumane treatment that I asked the secretary about. I asked him if he would do a comprehensive investigation as to these allegations into how CBP officers are treating migrants 
the accusations of kicking children awake in the middle of the night while they're, while they're asleep. He wouldn't make that commitment except on individual cases. Will you make the commitment here and now to do a comprehensive investigation about the cruel acts that many of your CBP officers, as well as they might be taking care of others, I'm not saying they're all bad, but there are widespread reports that demand an invest a comprehensive investigation. Will you commit to that? I, I can tell you that is not the job of my Border Patrol officers. That is the job of the Office of Professional Responsibility. I can tell you that that instance is, being is definitely being office? investigated. That uh, comprehensively or individually? I can't speak for all of the investigations that the Office of Professional Responsibility currently has going, but I can tell you that I do know that that case is under investigation. So, so the only, and, I'll, and then I'll conclude, Madam Chair, thank you for your indulgence. So you, like the Secretary, are only aware of and only willing to commit to individual investigations of specific allegations rather than the, because if it were me and I had widespread accusations of my officers people in my, uh, under my supervision being accused of cruelty. I would want to get to the bottom of it, not case by case, but whether, where the breakdown is and how that's being allowed on the border. Ma'am, this is something that we work closely with the Office of DHS, Office of Inspector General, which that is their job as well as the Office of Professional Responsibility. And Madam Chair, unfortunately there appears to be a culture of cruelty that goes all the way to the top in the Department of Homeland Security. Thank you. I yield back. In recent weeks, reports have surfaced about allegations of sexual assault, other types of humiliation, and unsanitary conditions for children and other migrants in overcrowded border stations, where they were not given showers, medical attention, clean clothes, or the space to sleep. Provost also said that CBP officers who made racist, misogynist, and violent threats on a secret Facebook page are being investigated. In other national news, the House Ways and Means Committee held the first hearing in 50 years on expanding Social Security. The Social Security 2100 Act, sponsored by Representative John Larson of Connecticut, would boost benefits by hiking taxes on the rich. And presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard is suing Google over alleged election interference. In an email distributed by her campaign, Gabbard says that on June 28, 2019, in the hours immediately following the first Democratic presidential debate, millions of Americans were searching online for information about Tulsi Gabbard. In fact, according to multiple news reports, Gabbard was the most searched candidate on Google. Then, the campaign says, without any explanation, Google suspended Gabbard's Google Ads account. Google offered the campaign three different explanations, ultimately blaming the glitch on a computer error. Gabbard, who has advocated for the breakup of the tech behemoths, told the New York Times that, quote, Google's discriminatory actions against my campaign are reflective of how dangerous their complete dominance over Internet search is and how the increasing dominance of big tech companies over our public discourse threatens our core American values. This is a threat to free speech, fair elections and to our democracy, end quote, Gabbard said. And in climate news, an analysis by the consumer advocacy group Public Citizen reveals that media coverage of climate denial by five prominent industry-funded think tanks has risen over the past five years, 
with most outlets failing to inform viewers or readers that the think tanks receive money from the fossil fuel industry. Public Citizen released the analysis as the conservative Heartland Institute prepared to hold its annual quote-unquote climate conference at the Trump International Hotel here in D.C. The think tanks are the American Enterprise Institute, Competitive Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, Heartland Institute, and the Heritage Foundation. The analysis revealed that many news organizations cited climate deniers to provide quote-unquote balance, even though the deniers' positions have been widely debunked. And finally, in D.C. news, there was a hearing on July 25th at the Historic Preservation Review Board to designate the Berry Farm public housing community as an historic landmark. Local public advocates for affordable housing, including Empower D.C., have been working to keep Berry Farm as an affordable housing for low- and moderate-income households. Empower D.C. points out that Berry Farm is one of D.C.'s earliest African-American home ownership communities created just after emancipation. It is home to D.C. leaders on issues of welfare rights and school desegregation, and it is the birthplace of the Go-Go Junkyard Ban. The Historic Preservation Review Board is scheduled to vote on the historic designation on August 1st. Statements and written testimonies can still be submitted by email to the Historic Preservation Review Board by emailing kim.williams at dc.gov. That's kim.williams at dc.gov. And finally, in culture and media, the 13-year-old Palestinian journalist Jana Jihad spoke at several venues in D.C. this week as part of a one-month tour visiting New York, Washington, D.C., Detroit, Portland, Los Angeles, and Fort Lauderdale to give voice to the children of Palestine who are growing up amid the violence of Israeli apartheid. On July 21st at Plymouth Congregational Church in Northeast D.C., she described her start as a child journalist. So I started journalism when I was only seven years old when I saw that there were not enough journalists to cover things that happened in Nabi Saleh. Like when my friend Mustafa was killed, my uncle Rushdie was killed, a lot of things started to happen and the world didn't know about our feelings as children living under this Zionist military occupation. How we're suffering every day, how children are just getting detained, getting killed, getting arrested, how we're not living our childhood, how our rights are getting violated, our childhood is getting violated, we're not living like any other child around this world. Instead of me playing, I'm getting arrested, instead of me like drawing, I'm seeing my cousin getting killed in front of me. So I wanted to be the voice of those children who are suffering every single day and to send their message to the world and raise more awareness about this very important and international issue. Jana Jihad covers the Israeli occupation in her own village on the West Bank, Nabi Saleh, where she is part of the Tamimi family and cousin of the youth activist Ahed Tamimi. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. In every way, in every 
people got everything Some people got nothing Some people got hopes and dreams Some people got ways and means no. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and for more international news this week, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, much of the focus here in D.C. was this Mueller testimony, but at the same time, there was plenty going on outside of our borders. Where do you want to start? Well, actually, in a sense, we can start with an offshoot of the Mueller report. I'm speaking of a New York Times editorial that appeared a day or two ago that was quite hysterical about the developing close relationship between China and Russia. On the one hand, it's fair to suggest that it's going to be very difficult for the United States to try to woo Russia as against China, as long as there's all this hysteria concerning, for example, Russiagate. In fact, you know that just on Thursday, the U.S. Senate released a so-called bipartisan report that suggested that since 2014, Russia has interfered in the electoral processes of all 50 states of the United States of America. So you see that there's a kind of dilemma that the United States faces with regard to Russia. On the one hand, they would like to woo Russia, since China is the so-called rising threat. But on the other hand, there's all of this hysteria about Russia simultaneously, which is a roadblock to that kind of wooing. And this comes in the face of a quite strident white paper issued by the People's Liberation Army in China that in many ways warned about war concerning Taiwan this rebel province off the coast of China, whose leader has been in the United States in recent days and weeks. And it's no secret that the Pentagon sees Taiwan as a kind of lance to wield against China. And let's not even mention the trade war that is going ahead with some velocity, despite the fact that the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, is on his way to Shanghai along with the trade negotiator, Robert Lighthizer. So this conflict between China and the United States is becoming ever more complicated and, in fact, is helping to make sure that it's going to be very difficult to move Russia in order to further encircle China. Well, I guess it's probably not worth mentioning that much of the so-called evidence or the facts in these reports about Russian interference really don't hold up to scrutiny. Uh, If you look at a lot of the things repeated over and over in the Mueller testimony, these are the same incidents that we've talked about on the show in the past in terms of these paltry number of Facebook posts from a a troll farm in Russia that is really not connected to the Russian government at all and and so on but anyway that really takes us into the weeds again Um, I do know that uh, this week 
In terms of China news, there was a business news that China passed the United States with a number of businesses on the Fortune Global 500, and the biggest four banks in the world are also Chinese. And when you when you talked about Taiwan, that is also where the United States had recently sold arms to Taiwan, right? Multi-billion-dollar deal. Exactly. So this is a、uh, an area right off the. Coast of Tai of China, so they obviously have an interest in terms of what's going on there, and this is supposed to be a part of China. So, anyway,、uh, where do we go next? I do know that you know if we want to to keep kind of jumping off of what happened on Capitol Hill as Israel、uh, ramped up, you know, its kind of continued ethnic cleansing campaign against the Palestinians. The House passed an anti BDS legislation. Well, this anti-BDS、uh, resolution legislation that was passed was significant in terms of the lopsided vote in favor of it. In fact, I was struck by the fact that the four more progressive members of Congress,、uh, led by Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Pressley, were split on this. Insofar as Ayanna Pressley. Who was elected in her congressional district in Massachusetts with significant support from the pro-Zionist community, actually、uh, voted against BDS.、Uh, this should not be seen as surprising in light of the fact that Senator Elizabeth Warren, also from Massachusetts, who takes some rather advanced positions on the domestic front, has been rather laggard on the global front, particularly with regard to Palestine. And I might say that I have some personal experience with this because in the state of Texas, there was a statewide anti-BDS piece of legislation that I had to confront when I was seeking to hire an indexer to index a book. The indexer was supposed to sign a contract to say that they would not engage in any boycott of Israel. Well, fortunately, before this indexer was compelled to make this very damaging、uh, contract, the courts intervened and at least temporarily have overturned this legislation.、Mm-hmm. Although, since we're talking about Texas, I dare say that they'll probably try to pass an updated version of it. But this issue is not going away anytime soon. Not least. Because human rights violations in historic Palestine are not going away anytime soon. We still have more news、uh, in that part of the world. Trump vetoed the vote to end arming Saudi Arabia, and of course, the Saudis are carrying on this horrific genocidal war against Yemen. Well, the good news is is that the comrade in arms of the Saudis, speaking of the United Arab Emirates. Has made a verbal declaration that it will be pulling its troops out of Yemen.、Uh, this is important because the UAE's troops have combat experience, given the fact that they work shoulder to shoulder with U.S. military forces in Afghanistan. And I think when we talk about Yemen,、uh, we should broaden our scope and pay much more attention to how the Gulf nations, particularly the UAE and Saudi Arabia, Or using the Horn of Africa right across the Red Sea from Yemen as a kind of playground. If you look at the deterioration of Somalia, for example, in recent years, 
a lot of it has to do with the fact of the Gulf Arabs supporting various religious zealots who are helping to destabilize any sort of government that emerges. Likewise, keep in mind that the Gulf Arabs are major supporters of Egypt, which is putting enormous pressure on Ethiopia because Egypt is charging that an Ethiopian dam is threatening Egypt's lifeblood, speaking of the Nile River, and that has caused enormous interference in the internal affairs of Ethiopia, to the point that I would suspect that one of the reasons why Ethiopia has tried to improve relations with its neighbor Eritrea is because of a desire not to be outflanked by Egypt and the Gulf Arabs, who, of course, are also heavily involved in Eritrea as well. So, I would hope that our friends on the left pay much more attention to this situation that's unfolding, not only in Yemen, but across the Red Sea and the Horn of Africa. And finally, we want to talk about what's happening in Libya. The news, predictably, is not very good. Uh, just this week, you had a major maritime accident where hundreds, scores of refugees fleeing Libya to cross the Mediterranean for sanctuary in Italy drowned. Now, last year alone, there were thousands of these refugees who drowned in the choppy waters of the Mediterranean. Obviously, this is direct outgrowth of the ill-advised war that the United States waged against Libya with its NATO allies in 2011. And I would hope that with these Democratic Party presidential debates coming up in a few days, that all of those potential candidates for the U.S. president would not only be asked about Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, but they would be asked about this Democratic Party debacle that has been created in Libya. Okay, well, we will definitely be tuning in on July 31st for that debate. And we certainly send our condolences to all the families of those who lost loved ones in the Mediterranean. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. 
And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, I'm joined by the writer and cultural critic Henry Giroux, Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Giroux's new book is The Terror of the Unforeseen, in which he describes the emergence of what he calls neoliberal fascism in the United States. He joins us from Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Giroux, or can I call you Henry? Oh, Henry is, I prefer Henry. Okay. So in this series, we've explored various ways that economic and state violence is a part of an American-style fascism. And in your new book, The Terror of the Unforeseen, you also explore language, saying at one point, I think referencing the writer Ruth ben Giat, that fascism starts with words. You write that Trump's use of language and his manipulative use of the media as political theater echo earlier periods of propaganda, censorship, and repression. So we're still focusing on his most recent racist attacks on the four freshman members of Congress here. So talk about language itself being a harbinger, a pathway to fascism. Well, I I think that, as as I say in the book, and I think it's generally true that fascism really begins with language. It begins with the language of brutality. And what it attempts to do is it attempts to create friend-enemy distinctions in which some people are basically seen as outside the pale of what's knowable, what's acceptable, and uh, what it means to have a voice and what it means to participate in any given society. And I think that what Trump did immediately was invoke a language of hatred, a language of racism and violence against, of course, undocumented immigrants. And increasingly, what he's done is expand that language. I mean, because he he not only, in, in a sense, creates a language that demonizes people, He creates a language that seems to suggest that they don't really qualify in the remotest sense to what it means even to be a citizen in the United States. And so he links that language of hatred, that language of brutality, that language of white supremacy and ethnic cleansing with a language of disposability, which is really quite dangerous because at its heart is an appeal to white supremacy and white nationalism. And I think increasingly what we saw with his attack on these four congresswomen, women of color no less, was that they not only don't belong in the country because they are not white, but they have no right to criticize power because power, in in his estimation, should be unaccountable. So that's a really lethal kind of combination. I think the other side of this is that he's trading upon a degree of anger in the United States, some of which is quite legitimate. People have lost their jobs. Manufacturing towns have been decimated. There's an opioid crisis. And so he's traded on that economic crisis in a sense by trying to claim that he has all the answers to that and that he's really going to address the roots of many working class problems. In fact, given what his language suggests, he he absolutely has no interest in addressing the questions of economic inequality, questions of racial injustice. I mean, in a sense, he's a joker. I mean, he's a guy who basically makes these promises to the working class, but ends up giving tax cuts to the rich, ends up cutting food stamps for poor children, and and in a sense, wages an enormous attack upon the welfare state and, of course, upon workers and workers' rights and civil rights, all in the name of the language of white nationalism and white supremacy. And I think the last thing to say here is, remember, it starts with language, then it starts with the suppression of dissent, and then it begins and it evolves to the banning of books, to the banning of intellectuals, 
and then it be- it ends with the disappearance of people. So it's a very dangerous trend. So I wanted to play a little clip of the Greenville rally and because there are a number of things that happened after that, including comments from Trump doubling down on what happened at one point saying that he tried to stop the crowd. But let's just hear a little bit of what happened at that rally. And at a press conference just this week, when asked whether she supported Al-Qaeda, she refused to answer. She didn't want to give an answer to that question. Omar blamed the United States for the crisis in Venezuela. I mean, think of that one. And she looks down with contempt on the hardworking Americans, saying that ignorance is pervasive in many parts of this country. And obviously, and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. That was Donald Trump speaking at his campaign rally June 17th in Greenville, North Carolina, where he used racist language to attack four freshman congresswomen. This is Esther Averam on On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. And I'm speaking with cultural critic and author Henry Giroux. And we're talking about how fascism starts with words. This is our monthly segment, The F Word on Fascism. And so, Henry, I wanted to get you to react to that segment. After that rally, he claimed that he tried to stop them during the chant, which wasn't true. And then he also, after that, praised the crowd as patriots. So I just wanted to kind of get your reaction to the whole idea of, I guess, lying, first of all, and then uh, the repetitive lies, and then also the invoking of patriotism to, I guess, stoke his base and and his version of history, really. I actually just wrote a piece on this that just appeared in Truth Out. But I, I think there are three things here that are really important. I think that, first of all, he did lie. Uh, he didn't try to stop the crowd at all. I think there was 12 to 15 seconds. He just stood there sort of jutting his, his chin out in a, in a pose similar to what the way Mussolini used to jut thrust his chin out. And I, and I think that the, the chant, you know, send her back, uh, send, you know, so forth and so on. I mean, to me, echoed what I believe happened in the Nuremberg rallies of the 1930s, where all of a sudden there's this whipping up of the crowd and a kind of orgy of pleasure around the presupposition that anybody who is who provides dissent or is critical of Trump or the government, in this case, uh, actually should leave the country. That you, you can actually be expelled from the United States for basically arguing against, you know, state assumptions about what matters in the world. But more than that, it's, it's also an attack on a notion of citizenship, which seems to suggest that the only viable form of citizenship can, can be uh, uh, attributed to people who are basically white. These are all women of color. And so the implication seems to be they don't belong here precisely because they're non-white, or people don't belong here precisely because of their religion, or people don't belong here precisely because of their ethnicity. I mean, that's very dangerous, because what you're really talking about is not just an attack on the Constitution, on the attack on citizenship. 
you're basically talking about a, a logic of disposability, a logic of racial and social cleansing. We have to get rid of those elements that don't belong in the United States because they somehow represent a threat to the United States. Now, combine all of that, which to me is an utterly fascist logic, to say the very least, with the presupposition that you have a president who, according to the Washington Post, and you don't really have to read the Washington Post to know this, has lied now over 10,000 times. And I, and I think when we talk about Trump's lies, rather than just saying, well, he lied and here's how we can prove it, I think the real issue here is in the consistency of the lies. Because Trump wants the leaders to believe that the truth doesn't matter. And that, you know, if the truth doesn't matter, there's no distinction between facts and fiction. Well, when you educate a public to believe that, you educate a public that can be manipulated. You educate a public that can't tell good from evil, a public that can't recognize state violence, a public that can't recognize racism, a public that can't recognize what the factors are that are giving rise to a, a fascist state that echoes, in many ways, the, the kind of fascism that we saw in the past. So it, it seems to me that ultranationalism that was at work there, the notion, the elevation of instinct over emotion, the contempt for dissent, the utter racism, the rewriting of the meaning of citizenship, these are all part of a logic of, of a kind of updated fascist politics that it seems to me now characterizes the state we're in at this point in history. Oh, I was also struck by the references to the military and yeah. not only the fact that that you cannot uh, criticize the United States, but that you cannot criticize the military and the military actions, um, which I guess, you know, there's there's not those actions are synonymous with the United States. And so it means that. Uh, in situations like Vietnam and Iraq, where we have engaged in illegal wars on people around the globe, that you're not supposed to be critical of that. And that, and with so much of the nation's treasure going to war and the war spy industrial complex, that also struck me as very dangerous, especially when it's extended to the border here domestically and the hiring of all these people who are given jobs to kind of enforce that order. Well, I, I think that one way of understanding this is that what you have under Trump is you have a heightened sense of militarization. The militarization now becomes the organizing principle of society itself. And what that means is that the society is governed basically primarily in the interest of a war culture, meaning that increasingly more forms of behavior are being criminalized, Social problems are being looked at not in ways to understand what produces them and how you can address them, but to punish people who basically are victims of those problems. And that the war abroad basically now becomes part of the war at home. So it seems to me that what we're talking about when we talk about Trump's language being militarized, or we talk about the endless attempt, rise of the punishing state at the expense of the welfare state, is you're talking about the emergence of a country now dominated by a war culture. Remember, one of the things that we often see in authoritarian countries is that as social problems become criminalized and the welfare state is really under enormous attack, money is shifted away from the welfare state into basically the military-industrial academic complex. 
And it seems to me that's what we see happening under Trump. Trump represents a kind of toxic masculinity that we don't want to overlook here. I mean, think about his celebration of other dictators, his absolute infatuation with power, his grandiose assumptions about the spectacle, his turning holidays into nothing more than updated military parades that mimic what we see in North Korea. I mean, this is a guy who is enormously dangerous. This is a guy who basically wants to punish his enemies. This is a guy who wants to militarize as much of society as possible. And this is a guy who is upping the ante of what I call state terrorism. I mean, when you tell the police that they, when they put people in a, in a patrol car, they should be, you know, they should bang their head against the door. Or you seem to suggest that the police should be unchecked in the way in which they deal with people who are marginalized by race and, and color and class. It's very dangerous. I mean, it's very hard to miss the militarism that Trump is absorbed in and it produces and is now attempting to legitimate in both his domestic and foreign policies. It's because we're talking about language and fascism and also right now militarism. This is the one area where corporate media that is basically considers itself uh, anti-Trump or the resistance to Trump. This is the one area where they fawn over him and agree with him. And even at some point say this is where he is his most presidential. So I'm going to play a clip, that famous clip of Brian Williams fawning over the missiles when Trump struck Syria. (laughs) We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. That was Brian Williams on MSNBC waxing poetic about U.S. weapons of war. So it seems to me that the language of the Cold War here in the United States can easily turn into a hot war. And if I want to focus on channels like MSNBC and CNN that love Trump's rhetoric when it's against Russia, China, Venezuela, or now Iran, in your book, you quote a television critic for the New York Times saying that these outlets have played a dangerous role in channeling populist anger. And David Bell is right that the educational force of this media machine poses a threat to the United States. The first casualty of this re-education of America has been truth the second moral responsibility, and the third, the last vestiges of justice. The result is a massive increase in human misery and suffering worldwide. So that also speaks to this whole militarization that you were talking about. One of the things that it seems to me is so intriguing about this right-wing populism that we see emerging both in the United States and across the globe is that you have an economic crisis that is not mocked by a crisis of ideas. And what I mean by that is that one of the things that the left and many others have failed to acknowledge is that neoliberalism, fascism, they're not just about economic structures and economic forms of domination. They're also about ideological structures. They're also about the creation of desire, the production of certain forms of ways of understanding the world, about the production of agents, about the production of narratives. And it seems to me that this question of education being central to politics has often been lost on many people on, for many people on the left. 
who want to focus largely on macroeconomic issues. And it seems to me that if you don't have a, if you don't have a society that is, is critical, that is informed, that in some way is able to be analytical, that is able to hold power accountable, then you, you don't have, you have a mass. You have a group of people who basically are ill-equipped theoretically and intellectually to deal with the conditions around them and thus become more susceptible, it would seem to me, to simplistic ideas, to populist leaders, to believing that one person can lead them into, into, the, you know, into the promised land, as we see with Trump. And I think when we talk about education, we're not just talking about schooling. We're talking about the mass media. We're talking about mainstream media, which endlessly either reduces people to consumers and operates off the assumption that the only obligation of citizenship is to buy things, or you talk about uh, an ideology that in in increasingly, and this to me is the most dangerous element of this, that increasingly leads people to believe that the only problems that matter are individual problems. That all problems are individual problems. That, that basically, if you're talking about the environment, then it's really basically your fault. If you're talking about poverty, then we say that people are poor because they, they like being poor. Homeless, they like to sleep outside. You know, very stupid kinds of elements of a sort of hardcore neoliberalism that basically removes responsibility from larger systemic considerations and enfeebles people so that they cannot translate private troubles into larger public issues. And I think when you see that, you see the groundswell for fascism. People unable to basically understand the kinds of contradictions in society, the economic inequality, the racism, I mean the attack on the environment, the attack on the welfare state, the elimination of social provisions, they have no language for that. And the media endlessly reinforces that. And it reinforces it through a whole range of assumptions in ways that eliminate civic culture. There's no sense of shared citizenship. Happiness is entirely a private right. The economic system should control not just the market, but all of social life. Individualism, hardcore individualism and competition in an almost Darwinian sense is all that matters. Self-interest is more important than the common good. And the welfare state signifies a weakness, as does the view that any kind of compassion should be treated with contempt. This is a very dangerous ideology, and it's spread endlessly in the media every day. And the only way to counter that is basically now through the alternative media programs like this and others that are basically doing everything they can to provide a very different language and a very different set of understandings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averm, and I'm speaking with cultural critic and author, Henry Giroux, and we're talking about how fascism starts with words. This is our monthly segment, The F Word on Fascism. We'll be right back. Float straight out of our lids. Them, they got boo bodies, hard rock Brooklyn kids. Us floor rush when they DJ booming classics. You dig the crew on the fattest hip hop record. He touched the kinks and sinks into the sounds. She frequents deep, fatter joints called undergrounds. Our funk zooms like you hit the Mary Jane. They flock to booms, man, boogie had to change. Who freaks the clips with mad amount percussion? Where kinky hair goes to unthought of dimensions? Why's it so fly? Cause hip hop kept some drama. When butterfly rock the light, we sway boomers. What by the cut? We push it off the corner. How 
now was the buzz entire hip hop era was fresh in fact since they started saying Audi cause funk's made fat from right beneath my hood the pooba of the styles like miles like 60s funky worms with waves and perms just sending junky rhythms right down your block we beat to rap what key beat to lock but I'm cool like that 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 I'm cool the chocolates tap to my raps. She innovates after sweet of cat naps. He at the funk club with the vibrate. Them, they be crazy down with the vibe. It can't kick a plan, then a crowd burst. Me, I be digging it with the bug burst. Us, we be freaking till dawn, peace and I. He gets a stranger smile, so I say hi. Who understood? Yeah, understood the plans. Him heard of it and put it to his hands. What I just flip, let borders get loose. How to consume all the beaches like juice. If it's the Man, Cleopatra Jones. And I'm chill like that. 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 This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm speaking with cultural critic and author Henry Giroux, and we're talking about how fascism starts with words. This is our monthly segment, The F Word on Fascism, his new book, The Terror of the Unforeseen. And we were talking before the break, Henry, we were talking about the power of corporate media. But, you know, it's more than Fox News to blame. And it's also more than Trump and the Republicans. Also, Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the media spectacle from D.C. this week of the Mueller testimony. From my perspective, Democrats continuing this political theater of the debunked Russiagate narrative and failing to mount a case for impeachment that will go nowhere instead of focusing on the issues of health care or schools or jobs or climate change and things that really impact people's lives. I thought about how in your book you talk about how words create reality and then obscure reality for people. No, I, I think it's a fabulous insight. I mean, look, the Democrats basically live in the shadow of Goldman Sachs. They live in the shadow of the financial elite, and they're wedded to them. The Republicans represent the high, a hardcore relationship. The Democrats, basically, with the exception, of course, of some younger Congress people, represent the, the softcore version. And what that means is that they're constantly engaged in a politics of diversion. I mean, they engage in this spectacle. This is not to say that the Russians didn't interfere with the, uh, with the election. But the real, that's not the real problem. I mean, the real problem is economic inequality. The real problem is the long-standing legacy of racism. The real problem is the potential for nuclear war. The real problem is an environmental crisis that suggests that the Earth might not be here in 10 years if we allow these fools to continue with the modes of governance that they're engaged in. So the real problem is that public goods are disappearing. Schools are being privatized. They're being defunded. The universities, faculty and universities, 70% of faculty and university are part-time. And that's a direct attack on academic freedom. The press and the media are owned by five or six companies. I mean, we are in crisis mode. Believe me when I say that. I mean, we are one step away from a ruthless form of governance and dictatorship. Call it what you may, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, fascist politics. But it seems to me not to talk about the issues that are producing this. Not to talk about the enormous suffering that people are going through in the United States. Forty percent of all families in the United States live on a day on a weekly basis, meaning that 
on a weekly basis, they face challenges about whether they're going to have enough food or to be able to pay for health care. Three men in the United States own as much as 50% of the bottom half of the United States. That's nothing more than not just simply a tragedy, it's an ethical nightmare. I mean, we no longer live in a democracy. All the commanding institutions of the United States are now controlled by the financial elite. And so it seems to me, if you really want to talk about democracy, if you really want to talk about the threats to democracy, you're going to have to talk about the economic, political, and social forces that are at work in undermining that, and the Democrats don't do it. The Democrats enjoy the spectacle. This is nothing more than another publicity show. A lot of the media have picked up on the racist chants at Trump's rally but a lot of people have not gone back to connect it to how he was initially encouraged to attack the four congresswomen by referring to Nancy Pelosi's disagreement with them and her milder attacks on them that were attacks nonetheless. And the issues that you were just talking about are issues that Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley have talked about. They're talking about inequality. They're talking about health care. They're talking about the police state. They're talking about the border, the concentration camps on the border. They have taken a lot of their encouragement to speak out from people like Bernie Sanders, who, you know, has made people unafraid to use the word socialist. <laughs> and so a lot of the attack was has come from the Democrats themselves. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very important question, and I'm grateful for that you're asking it, because I think that what we're seeing here is we're really seeing an enormous fight over the nature of politics and how we define the political and how we define resistance to capitalism. I mean, remember, if you operate off the assumption that these four congresswomen, I think, operate off, and that is that democracy and capitalism are not the same thing. And as a matter of fact, they may be enormously antithetical to each other. And I think that in the, for the leaders of the Democratic Party, for the Democratic Party in general, as far as they're concerned, capitalism and democracy are the same thing. And they want to do everything they can to make sure that capitalism, even in its most virtual and viral forms, uh, is not under attack. Hence, there's an enormous division in that Democratic Party over the future of the Democratic Party. For me, I understand that division, and I understand the role that Pelosi is playing, and nobody should be surprised by that. I mean, because what these four women are doing is they're really questioning the very foundation, theoretical, political, and, and otherwise social, upon which the Democratic Party rests. The other side of this is that we really need a different kind of conversation. We really need a conversation about a third party. We really need a conversation about a party not tied to Goldman Sachs, a party that really believes in economic equality, a party that's willing to fight for social justice, a party that's willing to, in, in, in a sense, dismantle the police state, a party that's willing to dismantle the, the, the huge military-industrial academic complex, and a party that really believes in social welfare. I mean, a party that believes that education should be free, health care should be free, housing should be affordable, uh, and so forth and so on. And I, I just don't believe it's going to take place within the Democratic Party. At the same time, we need a really different kind of a language. We need a different language for resistance. We need a different language for politics. We need a language that brings these various movements together in ways in which we can understand what they share and the threads that run through them that they share that will allow them to unite under the banner of democratic socialism. 
I mean, that thing seems to me is the real battle there. So that this fight in the, in the Democratic Party, uh, I mean, this is a sideshow. I mean, I, I, it just simply it, it makes more clear the need for a third party, as opposed to uh, a, a kind of Elizabeth Warren sort of, you know, let's make the Democratic Party more radical. It's not going to happen. I mean, the Democratic Party is the, is the, is the lightweight party of Goldman Sachs. Not going to happen. So because language is connected to knowledge, I want you to talk a little bit about the role of education and educators in the formal setting in schools and universities in pushing back against uh, kind of like know-nothingness and the appeal to ignorance that much of this phase of fascism seems to require. I've been writing about education for a long time. And as you, as you probably know, I, I was a close friend of Paulo Freire for 15 years. And I, and I think that one of the things that we understood about education, beginning with the writings that we did in the 1960s and 1970s, that education is not neutral. Education is really a struggle over knowledge, a struggle over power, and a struggle over identities. And it seems to me that its first mission should be to educate people to be critical agents, to be able to engage the world in, in which they learn how to govern rather than be governed. And I think that anybody who makes the claim that education is neutral misses the boat. Uh, it's not neutral. And I think that what we have seen in the last, since the 1980s, with the election of Reagan, is a full-fledged attack on education as a democratic public good. And I, and I think that what we need to see, and what we have seen somewhat uh, in the United States with the, with the range of strikes on the part of uh, public school teachers, is that they want to defend education as a, as a democratic public good. They're not just asking for higher wages, which of course they deserve. They want a place where kids can really be educated. And I think that educators have a responsibility to stand up, stand out, mobilize, join with other groups, and to do everything they can to preserve education as a public good. Look, I mean, you have been suggesting this throughout this exchange. Ignorance is not innocent. I mean, as James Baldwin said, you combine ignorance with power, and you really have a lethal form of domination. And I think that we need to take seriously the fact that our schools, public education and higher education may be one of the few places left where dissent and exchange and critical dialogue and the possibility for intellectual growth can take place to fight the rampant anti-intellectualism that now has become the organizing principle of American society endorsed and sanctified and legitimated and exhibited by the very president of the United States. So it seems to me that this fight over education, at its best, is a fight over democracy. It's a fight over creating people who are informed. Remember, as Dewey, John Dewey once said, you can't have a democracy without informed citizens. And he was absolutely right. What did Hannah Haran say? She said, the essence of fascism is thoughtlessness. The inability to understand and the social costs that emerge out of our actions. And they're, they're absolutely right. And I think that's a terrific question, and it's really worth, it seems to me, thinking about. You know, uh, CBS News played an extended clip of the rally in Greenville, and it's something that I didn't see before, but apparently there was someone in the crowd, at least one person, pushing back on Trump when he started to attack Ilhan Omar. And you can see him turn around and the crowd starts to boo that person and they give the thumbs down and they start chanting USA, USA. 
And, um, you know, there are a lot of like most people of color when they see a whole bunch of white people chanting like USA, USA, it's like, you know, you don't want to be anywhere near there. Right. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Absolutely. It's it can be a it's a terrifying chant when you really know history. <laughs> you know. So but I, I wanted to mention that because because when we're talking about ignorance, it's kind of like ignorance in the hands of the mob is really the most dangerous thing in this country. I mean, I think that one of the things that we're, we're both getting at here is that, you know, ignorance creates people who look for simplistic answers. And ignorance creates people who basically are willing to believe that at the heart of their problems are basically people who don't look like them. And I think that when you start suggesting that white people are victims, in a sense that people of color and others who are considered, people who are considered others, are really their enemies. I mean, that's the basis for violence, state violence and otherwise. And I think that what we increasingly hear from Trump is, is it becomes an enabler of violence because his language is filled with the rhetoric of hate. It's filled with, with a rhetoric that posits other people as the enemy of the American dream. It's a rhetoric that basically makes steeped in anti-intellectualism and white supremacy. It's a rhetoric that basically is utterly militaristic and increasingly dangerous. This is language... Esther, in the service of violence. That's basically what it is. And that's how it should be named. Okay, well, I think that we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry that I could definitely have another conversation with you about these same topics, and I hope that we will. But I've been speaking with Henry Giroux, author of the new book, The Terror of the Unforeseen. This is our monthly segment, The F Word on Fascism. Thank you for joining me today, Henry. Oh, you bet, Esther. And author and cultural critic Henry Giroux will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Go to onthegroundshow.org to support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Bob Marley's Survival, Daft Punk, Solar Sailor, and Diggable Planets, Rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averm. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.